Welcome to the Columbia Church Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. We're so excited to share this weekend's message with you from Dr. Jim Balkum, our senior pastor. We hope it encourages you, inspires you, and helps you grow in your faith as a whole life disciple. Now, enjoy the message. I love those baptism images <clears throat> in that bumper. You know, baptism is the, the symbol of, of moving from death to life. And uh, if you've been contemplating baptism and you haven't had the opportunity yet, you know that we are right on the heels now of our outdoor All-Columbia Baptism service. And I hope you'll give that some thought. And I hope you've been able to give uh, eternity some thought. And, and it's been intriguing for me to speak about this. I've never preached about eternity before. I mean, I guess that's an exaggeration because I've preached around eternity in almost everything I've ever taught. Uh, but just to specifically talk about these places that uh, the Greek phraseology around eternity shows up, the promise of eternal life, its consummation, what it looks like has been really intriguing to me. You know, it's hard to depict eternity. So when I try to illustrate it, I, I, I just get lost. I, I, you know, when I'm working on these sermons, I start thinking, how do you illustrate, how do you talk about that which we can only mildly comprehend, that we can't, we can't really comprehend in our, in our sphere, we can't really feel? And, and for centuries, you know, people have struggled to sort of try to paint or depict uh, in somehow eternity. Those of you who have seen my slide decks any number of times know that I love the iconography of the Eastern Church, uh, which uh, is still being made to this day. It's beautiful stuff. I know we, as uh, in our line, we don't use much iconography. We're kind of careful about that. But to try to see how the human imagination, how an artist would capture something is, is intriguing to me. And so one of the earliest uh, paintings that you can see is, uh, is, is an image that I have in my office. It's called Jesus Pantocrator. It's, it's, there probably has been no picture that's been more painted in Christian history than this, unless it's maybe the cross itself. This, this thing appears all over the place. So you could find it, for example, a fourth century painting like this, and in fact, that's what this is, in Istanbul, um, in the eastern uh, part of the church, where this painting is still being drawn to this day or painted to this day, but you can find these, these ancient old images. And just to think about how those who came before us tried to capture the notion of eternity in a picture of Jesus is, is pretty amazing. Or to be on the Sinai Peninsula, and maybe you'll get a chance to go there at some point and enter one of the oldest churches in the world at the base of Mount Sinai and to see this massive painting of Jesus Pantocrator there. This, this picture you can find all over the world, but especially in the eastern areas of the church's history. It's really amazing to see. So if you take a look at this picture, it's always depicted the same. And Jesus is holding in one hand the Gospels. So he's holding Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We're studying John here and John's depiction of eternity. And then he's holding up his other hand. Show this picture again. You can see that the other hand indicates that he's teaching about what is in the Gospels. And then there is the picture of his face and the words on the top say Jesus Christ in, uh, in, in a language that you don't speak anymore. And around his, his head is this, this sphere, this, uh, this eternal presence of, of Jesus. So you've got the Gospels, which are good news. Gospel means good news. You've got Jesus, the teacher, which a lot of people like to attend to 
But what is in the face of Jesus here? Uh, this, is, this, is, uh, this is Jesus' RJF. This is his resting judgment face. And this is a stern look. And in all ancient iconography, it's, you'll never see Jesus with a smile. It's, you will in modern imagery, but, but not in ancient iconography. Maybe you can find something somewhere, but I've never seen any place where Jesus didn't have a face that looks something like this. And this face speaks judgment. You know what a face that speaks judgment looks like? You do? Okay, I, I, I heard some yeses from sons and daughters out there. So your mama had one of these. She still got it if she's still around. She got this face. She didn't need to say a word. She looked in a certain way and you knew you were in trouble. Am I right? I, I can't get any amens to this one. Your mama doesn't have this face. My mama has this face. Your dad's got it, but it's not quite the same. Only moms do this face exactly right, I, I gotta say. And that's why if, if you're married, you know your wife's got this face. I hope you didn't see it this morning on your way into church. I hope you're not seeing it right now. Could be don't look at your wife if it's been a hard morning. She's gonna give you this face. She doesn't need to say anything doesn't need to do anything. It's just, there's a look, right? This is RJF. This is resting judgment face. This is what this is. You know, I've got this face and you've got this face. All God's people got this face. Everybody has this face. And when you look at a picture like that, I, I think that something deep within you stirs. Because for most people, when we talk about eternity, which is unknown, and of course, you know the old saying, the devil you know is better than the devil you don't. So eternity for us is something we haven't experienced. We can only mildly envision. We can read about in scripture. We can talk about, we can imagine. But we, we haven't experienced whatever comes after our life in the flesh. And for that reason, it's a, it's a frightening notion to us. I was intrigued the very first week that this bumper, and I never make these bumpers. I come up with the themes for them, the ideas for them, and then submit them to my staff team. They work with other professionals. They come up with these. I see them often the first Sunday that I preach or teach because they often are coming in right before. And I was intrigued that the imagery was sort of gallows imagery. It was deathly imagery. It, it, it's, it's, it's graveyard imagery. It's Halloween imagery. To talk about eternity must have this, this kind of tone to it. Boom, boom. But, it, but is that the Christian notion? Understanding, is that really the hope of eternity? When I say the word judgment day, how many of you feel fear? I'm not going to ask you to lift your hand, but I'm going to tell you that a lot of Christians do. I suppose I have had no conversation more in my career as a pastor than that with people who say, I don't know if I'm truly saved. Uh, are you following Jesus? Yes. Have you given your life over to him? Yes. Are you, are you living a life that is worthy of him? Trying to, yes. You're saved. Stop worrying about it. They can't. And it's because they grew up with this face. 
this image in their mind, a stern and angry God, a God who, who wants to judge them and is looking for any excuse to do so. In many of your backgrounds, if you come from that kind of Christian experience, this is what was given to you. And it was given to you in a way to keep you from misbehaving, to keep you from doing something that your parents wouldn't like and your preacher wouldn't like and your teacher wouldn't like and whoever wouldn't, wouldn't like. But is that... Is that how we should feel about eternity? The Bible says no. Now, in fact, let me tell you something that's going to surprise you. So if your faith is in Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord, you are a believer. So I preached about belief, which is activated faith. Faith is given by God. You activate it, and it becomes belief. And if that is you, you're not going to be judged. Now, I know I'm going to get a lot of email about this, so it's going to take me days to unwind this with you because what I hear from Christians is everybody is going to stand before the judgment seat of God. Is that biblically accurate? No. No. In fact, you're going to bypass the judgment. You're going to scoot right around the edge of it. I don't know whether you'll see it happening. I don't know what that imagery is going to look like. I can read Revelation just like you can and then wonder, what's it going to be? I, I, I don't know. But what I can tell you is this, that the judgment day for you will not entail a guilty or innocent verdict if you are a believer in Jesus Christ. I think that's how people imagine it. They'll get there and either they'll hear this guy say guilty or innocent. Let me be clear, none of us are innocent. We are quite literally guilty as sin. If our hope is in our goodness, our rightness, if our hope is in our our right orthodoxy, our right belief about particular little elements of Christianity, if that's our hope, we have no hope. You're not going to hear guilty or innocent. You're going to hear case dismissed. In fact, you've already heard it. You've already heard that voice say case dismissed. You will not be judged. Is that good news to you? I mean, I'm going to tell you if you show up at court, you're going to face the judge. I'm just telling you that if you're a follower of Jesus, the Bible tells you it does very clearly that you're not going to show up in court. Now, before you email me, I know I know there are some places that you could go and you could say, well, wait a second, what about this? And probably the biggest one is people might talk about Matthew's depiction of Jesus separating the sheep and the goats, right? So there's a judgment and, you know, the sheep go to one side and the goats go to the, go to the other, the right and the left, the good and the bad hands of God. And so, you know, if you're a sheep, you go over here. If you go, you go over there. So you want to be separated into the right pile. And so people think about that. But take a look at that story again, which, by the way, is an illustration of Jesus about the way we care for people. It's not really a depiction of judgment per se, but take a look at it and recognize that all of the believers who cared for the least of these had no clue. They were caring for the least of these. It was just who they are. It's just what they did. And so I don't think in any way, shape, or form that that is some sort of an accurate depiction of what's going to happen. And the reason I don't think so is because Jesus himself, I'm gonna show you, tells us we will not be subjected 
to the judgment. He's already taken our place. He's already died for the forgiveness of our sins, been resurrected for our recreation. And in reality, if there were to be a judgment day for us, it's already occurred. And so we don't call the judgment day the judgment day. We call it the resurrection day. It's the day that we'll be resurrected from death and walk to a new heaven and a new earth. And that, that will be the judgment day. It'll be a death sentence for those who've not believed in Jesus. I can't sugarcoat this. The Bible's really clear. But for us, it's just resurrection day. This stuff's all over the Bible, though. And, and I'll just tell you, we can argue about what hell is because there's so much imagery in the Bible. And then we got Dante mixed in and all these other things that we kind of conjure up. And we can talk about whether this is permanent separation from God or what, whatever it is. I mean, there clearly is some permanent separation from God that is, is a punishment of sorts for sin. There's no doubt about that in the Bible. We can debate, though, that here's what we can't debate. Some people will be with God eternally because they activated faith in Jesus Christ. It's called belief. And some people will be permanently, irretrievably separated from the love of God. And that's frightening enough. Scares me not for me. I know my belief. It scares me for the world around me, for people I love and care for, for my neighbors, my friends. So Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 1, 8 through 10, first part of that verse, God will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting, the same word, eternal here in the Greek that we've been studying, everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might on the day he comes to be glorified. Not debatable. You can contradict scripture if you like, but if you're going to accept the teaching of scripture, it's not debatable. And Paul says in Romans chapter 6, 22 and 23, a lot more famously, now that you've been set free from sin and become slaves to God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness and the result is what? Eternal life. The wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And the reason that that is possible is that A, you've already begun it. I'm going to show you how clear this is. And that B, your death, as the world calls it, is not a death, but a transition. And C, that you will not face the judgment. If you did face the judgment, you'd lose. I don't care who represented you. But you will not face it at all. And for that reason, you'll pass by in Jesus' name. Pretty amazing truth of Scripture that I think many Christians don't recognize. Now, we've been looking at the Gospel of John, and I told you that the main theme of the Gospel of John is, in fact, eternity. And so when we look through the lens of eternity and we understand Jesus' teaching about forever from now on, when we understand that, we come to the part where Jesus himself deals with judgment and its place ushering in eternity. The judgment day or for followers of Jesus, again, the resurrection day. And it's a great piece of scripture. So this is John chapter 5, verses 16 through 29, and I'm going to stop throughout this. Now, because Jesus was doing these things, healing people, such as that, teaching on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. And in his defense, 
Jesus said to them, my father is always at work to this very day, and now I too am working. Now let's just pause here because there are 50 sermons in this one verse. Any of you who've ever done the experiencing God material, Henry Blackaby stuff, I've done it several times, this is sort of the essence of it. This sort of captures everything that he's about. And I think Blackaby does as good a job as anyone at teaching us that the model of Jesus is the model for Jesus' followers. And he uses a lot of other scriptures than this, but he returns to this one again and again because, you know, he says, here's the model. God is always working. And therefore, Jesus, given authority by the Father, the Father gives to the Son the authority. And so Jesus is already working. And then he invites us to join him in the work. And so as the father is working and the son is working, so also the followers of the son and the father are working. Now, the interesting thing is here, the Greek word for working, which is a fascinating word. It's agarzomai, and it, it, it means I work, and Jesus says I am working, but it more literally means I trade. I trade. What is Jesus trading? Well, he's trading death for life. This is the work of Jesus because this is the work of the Father. The Father is a redeemer. The Father loves us and is constantly redeeming his creation. He's constantly calling to us, constantly drawing us to himself, seeking this love relationship with us that will last forever. This is God's purpose relative to us. Not that God has a purpose. God is God. But relative to us, he is the redeemer. He's the one who's drawing us into eternal love relationships with him. He's trading death for life. Now, if we're going to join God in what he's doing, let's join the son who has joined the father. In the father's authority, the son gives us the authority. As I'm working, you work too. If we're going to join him in what he's doing, what does that mean? What does it mean for you? It means that you also have to be in the business of trading death for life. And not just your death for your life, but the world's death for the world's life. A new heaven and a new earth. You have to be in the process of making all things new. I don't think we can legitimately say that we are believers who've activated our faith unless we are fully engaged in this enterprise. It plays out in lots of big and small ways. Yeah, let me tell you about a conversation that uh, our staff had. It, it was fascinating. So have you been struggling with the transition at all? You know, knowing like what to do when and how and, you know, what stage are we in of whatever we're in and are we at the end or at the beginning? You know, what is this? I mean, so constantly we're having these conversations about what do we stop doing or what do we pick back up or whatever. And, and one of the biggest discussions we've had in a while, I know that sounds odd that this would be a huge discussion, but it was, was on trunk or treat of all things, trunk or treat. Now, Columbia's done trunk or treat for years. In fact, I would dare say that if you go into the community around us and you ask them what they know us for, people will tell me, well, they know us for spend yourself. I was amazed. Uh, some months ago, we met with a group of people about this building process that we're in who were our neighbors, and they had no clue about spend yourself. They didn't know anything about our feeding the hungry. They didn't know anything about as much as we think that's what we're known for. 
they didn't know about it. And the question is, how would they? I mean, they're not engaged in it. And maybe that's a question too, is how do we engage the community? But they did know us for a few big events. So they knew us for the CDC, which has been around for a long time. It's a magnificent ministry because a lot of their kids had been there. And the biggest thing they said is, we know you for, can you say it with me? Trunk or treat? Huh. Interesting. Trunk or treat is one of the most inside out events we do, Jason. That was Jason's team. I mean, it is the church doing something for the community. And frankly, it's sometimes been a struggle for us to convey this. Like our own people sometimes want to be the consumers of trunk or treat and things like that's not his intention. Its intention is that we are working. We are trading life for death. We're joining Jesus. I know it sounds strange that this would be joining Jesus, but it shows up in little places like this in what he's doing. And so this year, everything was hard. So with the pandemic, we can't do any of the stuff inside. The inflatables are a bit problematic. Serving food is a little bit more problematic than it would because remember, it's not just you. It's people out there and their comfort level. And so the biggest thing that we realized is that our construction gives us this little parking lot over here and people got to park somewhere, which thank you, the BWA lot has been our place on weekends. We partially own that, but it's such a great partnership. So could it be done? And the answer was yes, but only if it is completely up to you. We need 50 trunks. Not small groups or ignition groups saying the 40 of us or 30 of us or 10 of us or 12 of us will do one. Every family, and if you've got kids, they're welcome to walk through if you host a trunk. Three to five o'clock on October 31st. Now listen, friends. If we are trading death for life, it means that we are issuing an invitation and that invitation is like unto the invitation of God. Come enter into a love relationship with us. Come to get to know us. Come recognize that we care. Look, it was a hard decision at the end. We said we're going to do it. Now the question is, are you? Well, here's a test. This is RJF, resting judgment phase. If you sign up to host 25 trunks by this time next week, we will do this. If one week from then, 40, 40 trunks, we will do this. Because on the 31st, we need 50 plus. If you don't, we won't. Because it's not us. It's us. It's us. Are we willing to do what it takes to welcome the community in? And by the way, that work just continues. And it's not just that this is the only work, but your church is one of the huge loci of this work that God is doing to trade death for life. So let's say that we get the community here because you show up with 78 trunks. That'd be awesome. We're gonna have to figure out where to put you, but we will. If you show up with that many and the community shows up and then they go, you know what, let's go to church there. And they show up on Sunday morning and they have children. I don't know where we'd put them. Because every single one of our preschool and children's classrooms is at or over capacity. Because our volunteers haven't shown back up. That's the truth. This building we're building, that's trading death for life. This thing we're doing, all the people who, I don't know where we're going to put them. 
I know where I'm going to put them for worship. I don't know where I'll put their children. I want to tell you something. The people who are serving us right now in preschool and children's ministry are heroes. If you do that, stand up where you are right now. Just stand up. You're down here. Stand up. Stand up. Stand up. And these people never quit. They just said, this is what the church does. And so this is what I do. This is what I'm about. Because if we're going to trade death for life, we've got to get people to know Jesus Christ. And the only way to do that is to get them to know Christ's people, to enter into the life of the church. And that means making them feel welcome. And that means helping them find their place. I recognize these people again and again. These are my heroes right now. What they're doing is harder than what I'm doing. Thank you. Look, it's not huge. Here's the thing. Is joining God in working and doing what he's doing is not some big thing you're waiting for. It's not some enormous one assignment you're going to get. It's not some one big game like Texas A&M beating Alabama. It's not like that. It's every play in the game. It's every little assignment. It's every little thing. It's saying, I'm going to look for where God's working and and I'm going to join him in what he's doing. And by the way, talk to me about your spiritual gifts. That's how you figure out what your spiritual gifts are, by joining God in what he's doing. Now listen, that's what we do as a church. And the reason we do it is because we've already started living forever from now on. So listen to what God says here through Jesus, his son. In his defense, Jesus said, my father's always at work to this very day and I too am working. And for this reason, they tried all the more to kill Jesus. They didn't want him to work. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. And Jesus gave them this answer. Very truly, I tell you, the son can do nothing by himself. He can do only what he sees the father doing because whatever the father does, the son does also. For the father loves the son and shows him all he does. Yes, and he will show him even greater works than these so that you, my friends, will be amazed. For just as the father raised the dead and gives them life, or raises the dead, rather, and gives them life, even so the son gives life to whom he is pleased to give it. Moreover, the father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the son, that all may honor the son just as they honor the father. Whoever does not honor the son does not honor the father who sent him. Very truly, I tell you. Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. Now listen carefully, okay? In fact, why don't you read this with me so you'll believe me? Has eternal life and what? Will not be judged. Could you just turn to your neighbor and say, I ain't going to be judged. It's not going to happen to me. It's not going to happen. Listen again. This is Jesus. Okay, so just, you know, you can say, well, Jim's wrong. Just be aware you're going to also, in this one instance, be saying Jesus is wrong. Very truly, I tell you, whoever hears my word, believes him who sent me, has eternal life, and will not be judged, but has crossed over from death to life. Has already crossed over. Very truly, I tell you, 
A time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear him will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to judge because he is the Son of Man. Now, listen carefully to what's being said here. The reason Jesus, the incarnate Son of God, The reason Christ has been given by the Father the authority to judge is because of his identification with us. Not because he's the son of God, but because he's the son of man. He can be given the authority because he's the son of God, because he's fully God. But he can identify with us because he's fully man. When he walked in the flesh incarnate, Jesus fully human. So he identifies with us in every way. The Bible's really fascinating here. It says that Jesus is kind of hard to comprehend. Jesus was tempted in every single way as we are. I mean, there's no temptation you've ever known that Jesus didn't know. He struggled with everything you struggle with and won the victory that you have sometimes lost. But Jesus understands what it is to be carnal in the flesh, what it is to be us. So your judge, Jesus, loves you. And your judge, Jesus, identifies with you. And if you have believed in this judge, he has already spoken these words to you. Case dismissed. Why don't I just make the judgment day for you the resurrection day? We should take a vote here. Would you prefer the judgment day or the resurrection day? Which would you prefer? So let's just see. Anybody say judgment day? How many of you prefer the resurrection day? If you didn't raise your hand, you're in trouble. I want the resurrection. I don't want to face the judgment because I'm guilty of sin. I don't have to because Jesus died in my place rose that I might be recreated and I have already heard the words case dismissed and I'm not afraid of the judgment and you shouldn't be either. We should be motivated only by the love of God. Enthusiastic, excited, hopeful, joyful about eternity, motivated by his love. Then we say, Lord, just show me what you're doing because I want to be a part of that. I want to be in on it. I don't want to miss out. This thing you're doing of trading death for life. I want some of that. It's powerful. The love of God constrains us, Paul says. The love of God motivates us if we're believers. There is one thing I want you to pay careful attention here to, and that is the present tense nature of what Jesus says. Just as the Father raises not raise, will raise, but raises the dead and gives them, not will give them life, even so the Son gives life to whom he is pleased to give it. In verse 21. Or how about this one? If we move on to the next, what we'll see is in verse 24. Very truly I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has, not will have, has eternal life and will not be judged, but has crossed over from death to life. Again, your neighbor, say them, I have crossed over. No, but have you? Have you? I mean, have you made that leap? 
Have you begun to live forever from now on? Not forever something out there that I better be careful. I don't do too many bad things because maybe I'll be judged poorly. But if you crossed over from death to life by accepting Jesus, cross an empty tomb as your own, and have you therefore avoided the possibility of judgment? Very truly, I tell you, Jesus says in verse 25, the time is coming. And has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Now, you could be forgiven if you struggle with this now and not yet quality of the lot of the Bible. You know, we talk about the parousia or the second coming of Jesus and this time in between the time Jesus came the first time, time he'll come again. This now and not yet quality, something that has already begun and is happening, a tense in the Greek that doesn't even exist in English, by the way, something that has begun and is, is already happening but will be consummated sometime in the future. If you struggle with that, You can be forgiven, trapped in time as you and I are. We don't get it. Something's either past, it's present, or it's future. Not in the Bible. In the Bible, it is past, present, and future all at the same time. And that is because, remember, eternity is the absence of time, not the extension of time. So all of this stands above time and space, and when we are eternal, we will too. But you may struggle with this. What is it to have already begun to know something, but to know it even more later, this now and not yet quality? So let me give you a couple of quick illustrations and close with this. And the first one I'll give you is vacation. Man, I I don't know what you've missed during the pandemic, so I gotta, if I put them in order, I'm gonna say that I did miss worshiping publicly most. But I didn't really miss eating out that much. But the big thing I missed was traveling. Are you there? Now, why did I miss traveling? Well, first of all, I love to travel. But it's not just the travel at the time of the travel. It is the anticipation and the remembrance of the travel. Am I right? So, you know, you've got a big vacation coming. I just want you to imagine this because maybe you finally scheduled this. It's Columbus Day weekend, so some of you might be on vacation while you're watching me, and God love you. And so if you take, take a look, just take a look at this picture, okay? This is like Laura Gravitt's dream of vacation right here. Yeah, yeah. I like the beach too, but this is like not my ultimate vacation, but this is a good one. This is some, you know, Pacific Island or something. You plan it long in advance. You get your reservations. You get the plane fare all set up. You get every, you start buying clothes for it because you didn't have any already. You start getting all that you need set up. And like if you like my wife, Debbie, she starts packing for a trip like a month before the trip. It makes zero sense to me. I, everybody knows you should pack an hour before you board the plane, but she starts packing long, right? This is personality thing. Starts packing long in advance and she's anticipating it. And I am too, you no, I'm looking forward to being away somewhere. This is more, more kind of like my dream vacation, the stuff I like to do. I like to travel somewhere where I'm constantly doing something. Because if I'm sitting on that beach, Laura, I'm still thinking about people here. But if I'm, if I'm having to do something where I every moment have to think about where I'm going next, I forget everything else. So that's what I like to do. But anyway, you anticipate that trip long in advance. And here's what I figured out in the pandemic. More than the vacation itself, I missed the anticipation thereof. Do you know what I'm talking about? You know when you have that hard day? But you got this trip. Maybe it's three months out there, but it's there. 
You've got an image of what it will be like laying on that beach or walking around wherever you're gonna walk around, doing whatever you're gonna do. You got that image and you're constantly planning for it and you've done all, you, you're making other arrangements. You're getting your tickets to a show or whatever it is you're gonna do. You know, you get, you're getting the food and drink package, whatever you're gonna do. And so, so you set that up and you start to imagine it and you have a really suck day. Not that you do, but I do sometimes. And on this day, you think to yourself, but soon I will be on this deserted island. Maybe even alone, I don't know. If you're Brett Flanders, soon I will be in Disney World. Soon I'll be overseas, wherever it is I wanna go. Soon I'll be there and not here. And you can feel the balm pour over you. Am I right about this? And when you don't have those things to look forward to, when every day starts to have a sameness and run together, there's nothing to sort of break up your life, it can become a little bit drudgerous. And then you take the trip. Let's say the trip was even better than you imagined it would be. So imagine your very favorite vacation ever. It was even better. And then afterwards, you bask in the glow for a while. Am I right? You remember it for a while. It's now, it's then, it's not yet. Now this is, this is not a precise analogy for eternity. There's no vacation you'll ever take, even that one on that beach, Laura, that is, is gonna be as good, as magnificent, as life in relationship to God without the complication of the world. That's what your forever after this world will look like. But, but you get it. You get what I'm saying. The biblical analogy is a wedding. So the Bible uses this over and over again. No big surprise. I mean, the Bible begins and ends with a garden wedding, as I often say. Wedding is huge imagery in the Bible. It's the picture of the relationship of Christ and his church. You know, marriage is a magnificent thing. We had a wedding here yesterday. It's sort of, it's sort of I didn't do it. Chris Clifford did, and uh, it was Jacob Stevens, many of you know, who grew up here. He was in Chris's student group. And, um, and so I sat back there, and it's fascinating to, to, to be in your sanctuary and not conduct the wedding, especially if the person who's doing the wedding works with you and is using a lot of your words. And so what I'll tell you is, um, here's what I figured out. Chris does my wedding better than I do. Who knew? This is a wedding yesterday, and every time there's a wedding, I think about this imagery. Now, I've been, weddings have been a big part of my life lately. Um, so my daughter, Marley, and Andrew, this is a picture of their wedding coming out from it. My daughter, Marley, and Andrew, they were married two years ago. There's a couple things that happen here. I got one more coming. So here's the thing is you got eight years of college if you have two kids. If you've got more than that, God help you. Some of them overlap. You got eight years of college. And then if you got daughters, you got weddings. And just so you'll know, because a couple of my friends in the church have been duly shocked by this, that wedding's gonna cost you the equivalent of another year of college. Brent Walker, can I get an amen on this? It's gonna cost you. So 10 years of college, essentially, in that case. And so one thing I know is soon, the checkbook's gonna close. But man, what you pay for it, that day, it just feels worth it. This is the end of that wedding. And walking out of it, I just had this immense sense of pride, satisfaction, gratefulness for what God's done in our lives. 
I love my son-in-law, Andrew. He's a magnificent guy. I love my daughter, Marley, of course. So this was their wedding, and I still bask in the glow of it. But man, if you've ever planned a wedding, it makes planning for a vacation look like a cakewalk. It is intense. Intense. So we looked forward to it, and then there it was. Now we got another wedding. Good thing you're here today, Kelly. Uh, So Kelly uh, and Jack, right right here, they're getting married this coming March. Yeah. I've already started spending money, and I've already started making a lot of plans. And that hadn't happened yet. It's going to be in Polly's Island, South Carolina. And uh, just, you know, in case you want to get like the helicopters to fly overhead or whatever, so celebrities. So uh, it's going to be in this huge place there, just a family wedding. But um, it's out there. But ask Jack and Kelly today if you want to, has this wedding already changed their lives? And the answer is yes. You remember being engaged? Hardest year of my life, one of them. It's already changed everything, and yet it has not yet become what it will be. And so it's now and it's not yet. And this is how the Bible depicts that judgment day that is for you a resurrection day as a consummation of the hope you have in eternity as something that is even better than what you're knowing of eternity right now. But you already know some of eternity and your life's already been changed because you've already passed over from death to life and because you will not be judged. Case dismissed. It's incredible. But it changes everything already because to live in Christ is to live forever from now on. It's to join God in what he's doing right now, trading death for life because you have traded death for life for eternity. Live forever from now on is our hope. It is our joy. It is God's word. And it will be fulfilled. Father, we thank you for eternity that has already begun for us because we have believed and we pray for anyone today who has not yet made that decision to activate the faith you're giving them and to believe in Jesus. Because we want every human being who lives near us or around the world. Every person we work with every next door neighbor, every person around this church, we want them to hear what we've heard. Case dismissed. Jesus has stood in your place. You will bask in the glow of God's love for eternity. So we accept your invitation to join you in what you're doing. We have traded death for life. And now our work is to trade the world's death for the new heaven and the new earth. By your Holy Spirit, empower us to do it in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, God loves you and I love you. You go ignite passion for Jesus Christ from Metro Washington to the world. Have a blessed week. Hey, thanks again for listening. If you live in the Metro DC or Northern Virginia area, we would love to worship with you at one of our weekend gatherings. For directions, service times, and information about all the incredible things happening at Columbia, go to columbiabaptist.org. That's columbiabaptist.org.